Have you ever had to shit during sex before? Um, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think I have. I, I think if I had, if I had the urge, it was like an early urge and I was able to just suck it right back up. Like my body knew, like there are more important things to do. There are more important bodily fluids. Yeah. This to... goes down the list. You're going to have to wait in line, bud. Well, have I got a story for you? Okay. This was probably this definitely my first year in Nashville. Okay. I was only in Nashville at this time for three or four months. I was seeing this girl we'll called Aaron. Okay. Close to Christmas time. We started hooking up, hanging out, all that good stuff. But I'll, I'll get into that after I tell this story. But earlier in the day, I made the egregious decision to have Sonic. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's going to be a gross shit. <laughs> Before I went over to see this girl that night. Uh-huh. So, oh, that's such a rookie mistake. It was a rookie mistake. Like if you're going to see a girl and you ate something like that, you know you got to take you got to take a dump. You got to push it out. I understand that now. Yeah. But as a younger man, I thought I was invincible. Okay. <laughs> so, we are getting down, having sex, and I feel that familiar feeling in my asshole mm. where I'm like, this is going to be a bad one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not good. So I didn't know what to do. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to come. So we stopped. This was also the, I actually know the exact date of when this was, this mm. was December 20th because cage. The elephant was playing a show that night at the basement East. Mm. I was very excited for it. Because they were about to release, or they just released an album that was produced by Dan Auerbach. They're a Bowling Green band, but technically like a Nashville band, because this is where they all live. Mm -hmm. And of course, Dan is from the Black Keys, and he produced the album at a studio in Nashville. So I was like, I want to be there for this. I'm very excited for it. Um, We get done, and I use the excuse, I want to go see Cage the Elephant tonight. Do you want to go see them? And she said, no, that's fine. You can go, though. Oh. Which, again, as a younger man, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't understand. You couldn't get the But job at this done. point, I had to shit, and I could not shit in her apartment. Because I knew it was going to be violent. You've already disappointed her. You might as well shit in her toilet. <laughs> it was going to be violent and just not good. It was going to yeah. be a bad situation. Like the back of the toilet is going to be a crime scene. Yes. Is it is spraying. going to be a fucking crime scene. Yeah. Like someone got their head fucking blown off. Like cleanup will be needed beyond just the flush. Yes. Absolutely. So I'm like, well, I'm going to take an Uber and get out of here. Yeah. Immediately. <laughs> I bend over to put on my clothes. I'm in her bathroom. With the door open, I let out this horrendous <laughs> fart, dude. It was silent, but it smelled so bad. Horrible. And it was the kind of fart where it's like, if you don't do something about this soon, right, this it's going to be tragic. Yeah, this is like those alerts in the movie, the red light. It's like, boom, <laughs> like, I know those farts. Where you're just like, you drop everything you're doing, and if you're home, you sprint to the bathroom. Yeah, I didn't know if something was going to come out. <laughs> it was a miracle that I didn't diarrhea all over her wall. <laughs> so I get an Uber, I leave, yeah, and I go home and I shit my brains out. I, on the Uber ride there, the Uber driver's just yapping, 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 talking to me. I make it in, dude. I get to the toilet and I unleash fury. It was not good. <laughs> So th this girl was just laying on her bed disappointed <laughs> because the guy who's like just stops fucking her. He's like, I can't come. And then she's got to just smell well, this awful fart. I had already I had already gotten, she's gotten like, her are you off. fucking kidding me? <laughs> Absolutely. There was other events that transpired before that. So uh -huh. but uh, yeah. So th th this whole thing, this whole situation with this girl, she was a really nice girl. Honestly, I, I would have. I wanted to date her. I just didn't know how at that After age. the fart, it was over. <laughs> it was it was over before it even started because there was another time 
this was her first Christmas in Nashville and she wasn't going to be going home. So it was kind of like the thing where it's like, okay, we're going to be basically hooking up over the holidays. And if, you know, it serves both of us, then we'll see where it goes. Well, she felt like the situation did not serve her. We never had a conversation about it other than she was just like, and we, we had still hung out a couple times after that. Like I saw her on Christmas day. I went over there, all this shit. Um, but she had texted me and she's like, this is just not working out. And I was like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> I, I, I took a, took an L. I knew, I knew long term. I had already dashed my chances because another time we went over, I went over there, and I was like, you care if I smoke weed? Because mm-hmm. she, she didn't like weed. She was not a fan of it. Okay. And she's like, I don't care. You can do whatever you want. So I was smoking weed. I was excited. I was like, I'm going to get fucked. I'm going to smoke weed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she, I could tell she did not like that either. Yeah. It was another thing where it was the same thing as you can go, go ahead if you want. You were just a farting, shitting, smelly stoner. Yeah. She had better things to do. She did. She did. She, uh, she honestly deserved a lot better than what I was <laughs> able to deal out at that time. Emotionally, mentally, physically, all of the above. Yeah. You see, but what you should have done is you should have been in bed. You should have told her you had to take a shit because then you could have seen how freaky she was. Because who knows what her response would have been. That is a road that I would have never wanted to go down. And what I had to unleash in that very moment was not something I would even wish on my own worst enemy. Damn. Sonic shits. They're horrible. Broadcasting straight from Big Rock Candy Mountain, I'm Zachary Lehman. I am Taylor Berryman. How can people find you, Taylor? You can find me on Instagram as the underscore Poptimist on TikTok, just at the Poptimist. Then Facebook, Taylor Berryman. I got all my shit posted there. I have the Poptimist podcast. Go check it out. Uh, Going to have a new episode next week. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Writing Lehman, Zachary Lehman on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, go buy my book, Nye, and follow the show on social media. And then review us, rate us, all that good stuff. So today, we're doing kind of a special episode about a guy we've both been fans of for a long time, right? Yes, Quentin Tarantino. Good old QT, who remains huge, but I feel like when we were growing up, he was everywhere. You know what I mean? He was, and it's not, it's rare to see like a director get fame where like a normal person knows their name, especially for the kind of movies he made. So he was huge back then. Would you say you're still a huge Tarantino fan? I'm still a huge Tarantino fan. Not as big as I was when I first discovered him. Yeah, me neither. Just because it's so new and exciting. Like his, his movies are rock and roll. Yeah. Like you watch Pulp Fiction. It's like, there's nothing else like it. It's just no. a hodgepodge of all these different awesome things. Yeah, I, I started off with Pulp Fiction, and then the next Tarantino movie I saw was Inglorious Bastards. Oh, shit, okay. So that was the second one that I saw, and then once I, I just started seeing them more and more and more, and I was a, a huge fan, because I really love his use of music in movies, which is what we were talking about today, the 10 best songs from his films. Yes. Five from you, five from me. Yes. From all his, because uh, yeah, that is one of his signatures is his use of music. Um, you know, whether it's like a pop song he'll randomly throw in or it's working with, uh, uh, you know, these super talented. I mean, he's worked with fucking RZA. We were talking about RZA earlier. Mm-hmm. RZA composed uh, Kill Bill, right? Or I did think, some of the music. He did some of the, did some music, of the music for it. Yeah. yeah so again, this he's is, a huge Samurai film. And uh, so again, yeah, I mean, Tarantino, uh, one of the things that appealed to me, I became an early fan because I really appreciated his writing and he talked a lot about writing and it was uh, very unusual for that time to like find people who were like, yeah, I'm a writer and it's fucking cool. Well, you can tell he's a pure fan of cinema, music, writing, books, literature, all. all that stuff. It's littered throughout his movies. Yes. 
And uh, yeah, the music is one of the things that shows it. I mean, his writing too, because his writing is very pop culture centric. So they talk about a lot of things that he cares about and he makes you care about them. But yeah, music is the other thing that is kind of a, a signature of his. And he, he shows his love of, of the music that he likes and the music that influenced him straight through the movies because he'll just straight up put the songs in. Yes. And or, it, or similar sounding songs to a sound he likes. Yes. And the other thing with him is, is he talks about whenever he's writing a movie, the first thing he does is go to his Listen record to music. collection. Yep, yep, yep. And he has a vinyl collection. He starts going through all of them. And that's how he might have a particular scene in mind set to this song. And he starts figuring out ideas from there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you ready to get into it? Yeah. So my first song choice, uh, well, not number one, uh, just one of my song choices, uh, is from Jackie Brown, Across 110th Street, Bobby Womack. This is basically what opens the movie. This is how you're introduced to Jackie Brown. It's this great scene where you're, you're, you're it's this stand, this standing shot on this wall, and you're just waiting. It's one of those like uh, escalator things at the airport. Yeah. That, and, she's a uh, flight attendant. She's a flight attendant. She comes into frame and you're literally this song's just playing. They play like almost the entire song and she's just walking, not walking. She's on this escalator. She's looking real cool. Not trying to speed up. Everybody tries to speed up on these things. I just thought, I mean, I love Bobby Womack and this is like just a moody, cool song. And like Tarantino's goal with Jackie Brown was make Pam Greer cool again. And in the span of this song playing and her coming into basically our world she was cool she was cool as fuck and that's what tarantino can do you're a lucky actor if you get a scene written by tarantino where he picks a song and it's just the song playing and you're just like basically doing nothing being introduced that is like a gift from god oh yeah well the song itself was originally on a uh, a soundtrack for a movie across 110th street yeah yeah the movie which uh, i didn't research but i bet i bet tarantino was a fan of it yeah, I mean, it's like a black exploitation noir crime film from the 70s. Mm-hmm. So it's right up his alley. Oh, yeah. He loves all those 70s crime movies. Did you like Jackie Brown? Because that's kind of his uh, redheaded stepchild in some ways. You know, I uh, I like Jackie Brown. Yeah, I like it decently. I would give it like B, a B plus as a movie because you also have to keep in mind it's his follow up to Pulp Fiction. And everyone just expected Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you go into it thinking like, oh, man, there's going to be a bunch of random stories and they'll connect and it'll be all weird. It's just it, it because it's based on Elmore Leonard, I think. It's a little more straightforward. Which, which Still is an ensemble, but. Different than how he usually does things because he writes. Right. I mean, he wrote a script for this, but it's always based off original ideas he has or at least people he steals from that he doesn't give credit to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is honestly Saying that out loud, that's probably what it really is. <laughs> yeah, I will say, I wasn't going to say anything negative about uh, Quentin Tarantino. But we were talking about if we're still fans. I am still a fan of his because, I mean, you go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's like, you can't deny it's fucking amazing. Yeah. Give me a million years I couldn't write something like that. Well, the Actually, other, fuck that. Go buy Nye, Amazon.com. It's the other better. thing about him is, too, it's like, he just has so much style. Mm-hmm. In his writing. It's just yeah. undeniable. It's his charisma through his... But I, w- I will say, as I've gotten older, I'm definitely less of a fan. Because back then, I listened to him a lot. I listened to him talk. He's become a little too lost for my taste. A little too... He's in the machine. High and mighty, you know, when he talks. His ego clearly works for him. But, yeah, I'm not as big of a fan as I was then. But, you know, saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'll read his books. I'll always go out whenever he... Releases a movie. I'll oh, yeah. I'll out. always be a fan. Yeah. Day of to the theater. So give me one of your picks. Down in Mexico by the Coasters. From? Death Proof. Death Proof. Another redheaded stepchild. Yes. This is, which I don't understand why people give this movie shit. Because I really like it a lot. I mean, <sighs> it's kind of like a, a horror movie. It's a slasher movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. Where Kurt Russell plays a stuntman, and he has a car that is... Stuntman Mike, right? Stuntman Mike. Yep. He has a car that's death-proof. And this song, Down in Mexico, plays during the, arguably the most famous scene of the movie, which is he gets a lap dance Mm -hmm. from this girl, and there's this whole scene building up to it where her friend uh, that's a DJ, they're in Austin, by the way, Mm -hmm. Austin, Texas, Robert Rodriguez's uh, stomping grounds. Because mm-hmm. it was re- released as part of the Grindhouse double feature. Yeah, the other directed by Robert Rodriguez. Planet, Planet Terror. Terror. 
Um, but yeah, down in Mexico, they before that whole scene happens, her friend uh, DJ Jungle Julia, she says something on the radio to the effect of like, if you recite this poem to my friend Butterfly, she'll give you a lap dance. Stuntman Mike recites the poem to her, mm-hmm. and she's not having any part of it. Yeah, she's like, I'm not interested. Yeah, and then. He starts fucking with her ego a little bit, saying, it looks like you wanted to be pestered all night by guys, and no one came up to you, so you're disappointed. She gets offended, says, you're going to have to take a rain check. He's like, you're not coming back through town anytime soon because you're here visiting. And then he says, I'm going to have to put you down in my book, which is a great part. He pulls Mm. out this book. And he says, I'm going to file you under chicken shit. (laughs) Yeah, I'm remembering this. Yeah. Then she says, okay, how about that lap dance? The jukebox inside this bar is pretty good. And it's this song, Down in Mexico, which is a re-recorded version of one of the coaster's earlier songs. Tarantino discovered this. He was working at a porn theater at the time, and he brought in a record to his friend who was like a music buff who was a projectionist at the theater. And he said, oh, no, re-recorded. You don't want to fuck with this. But in my opinion... This version is far superior to the earlier version. It's a little more grooving, a little more sexual. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it's just a, a great a great song. Mm-hmm. It's got that cool kind of yeah, it's, style. To yeah, it. you're talking about it's making me want to uh, rewatch Death Proof, which I love. I love Death Proof. And what did, you, what did you think of this scene in the movie? Oh, I thought it was great. Kurt Russell's fantastic. I can't think of the actress's name, but she's great. And it just, it's the... It's the perfect opening to Death Proof. You know what I mean? Vanessa it's like this. Furlight. Okay. As Butterfly. Can you hear me, Butterfly? Because <laughs> uh, it's almost like a short film that happens, and then all of a sudden you're in the next movie. Because once this plays out and he does what he does, yes. and you find out he's a killer. The song itself is like a short film, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, it tells a story. Yeah, it tells a story about uh, this bar that's down in Mexico. And the, the line from it is, he wears a red bandana, plays a cool piano at a honky-tonk town in Mexico, mm-hmm. which has just got that Quentin Tarantino coolness. It's a great song. Also, he worked in the foot thing in this scene, too. Of course. When she first starts giving the lap dance, she puts her foot up. She's wearing like a flip-flop or some shit, and it shows her toenails painted. You She's doesn't like, like that? Dude, I'm just not into feet. I don't understand. Like, Tarantino is a foot guy. That's what he is into. Yeah. And it is a... The, R- refined taste. It's as uh, prevalent in his movies as fucking the F word. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he I mean, he he's loud and proud. He wears his colors loud and yeah. proud, man. Dude likes sucking feet. So what? You going to judge him? <laughs> well, speaking of feet, do you have anything else from Death Proof? Uh, no, songs? nothing else from Death Proof. Okay. I want to go into one of my picks, which also includes a foot and a lap dance. Well, yeah, I'd say it's a lap dance. Uh, After Dark, which is from from Dust Till Dawn. It's by Tito and Tarantula. Now, I kind of cheated on this because Tarantino did not direct from Dust Till Dawn. Yes. He wrote Robert it. Robert Rodriguez did. He wrote it with Robert Rodriguez and he starred in it. It was like his biggest role. Uh, did not direct it, but. They say this movie was kind of the original grindhouse where Rodriguez did a lot of the heavy lifting on the second part, which is like a vampire movie. Tarantino you is the feel first it. movie. You the can the feel first it. Yeah. 45 minutes, it's, it's like a all Tarantino. Tarantino. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And then the second, well, well, we'll get into it. But anyway, okay, this is, uh, when I was a boy, this was my introduction to the one and only Salma Hayek. She's hot as fuck, dude. She's. I beautiful. mean, I saw this when I was way too young to be watching it. Like, we're talking... I'm sneaking downstairs to get like the VHS tape and it's midnight. I'm going to put it in the little TV in my room. I'm going to sit right in front of it so I don't have to have it too loud. Like I'm talking, I'm probably like seven, eight. I'm young. I probably saw this movie at like five or six. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, this scene is basically uh, the Gecko Brothers played by George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino. George tr- Clooney's great in that movie, by the way. They're trying to get to a place called El Rey and they got to meet at this shit bag uh, place called Titty Twister to meet their guy who's going to get all their paperwork in order and whatever. And he take, they take a family hostage, but anyway, so at, they're at this place, the titty twister and Salma Hayek comes out for a solo show. She's 
dancing, you know, I mean, you know, me as a young man, this was very, very exciting stuff. So she dances and ends up paying all her attention to Quentin Tarantino, even though everyone's around the table, George Clooney's over there. And she, at one point, puts her foot in his mouth. Well, she runs alcohol down yeah, her leg. Takes, yep, takes a bottle of alcohol, starts running it down her leg, right into his mouth. Did, you weren't turned on by that? No. Uh, yeah, me neither. Uh, so yeah, so she ends up doing this dance. The song is After Dark. It's very slow, very moody, kind of grungy, bluesy. Little bit, yeah. Um, so I just think it's perfect. I mean, again, it's just... Tarantino knows how to make you look cool. He knows how to make you look sexy. This guy gets a camera on you. He can make you look any fucking way he wants. So I, I love that. It's a great fucking scene. Oh, and another thing. I, I remember Tarantino telling this story because George Clooney is technically the lead. At the end of this scene, uh, Salma Hayek turns into a vampire, kills Richie. That's his character's name. Yeah. And George Clooney said to him when they were on set, he said, I'm the lead character. Why is she not giving me the lap dance? And Tarantino said, because you didn't write this fucking movie, which I think is fucking great. Um, so, yeah, that's that's another one of my picks. Let's hear another one of yours. I got a name by Jim Croce. From Django. From Django Unchained. Great use of a great fucking song. Well, it's perfect for that scene, too, because it's right after Django. He finally has his freedom. He gets some new duds. Yep. He has some new clothes. He's feeling good. And it's basically this a little bit of exposition here where it's him and... Uh, Dr. Schultz, Schultz yeah. played by uh, Christoph Waltz from Inglorious Bastards, um, just riding through the snow in like Wyoming or some shit. You know, they're in, mm -hmm. the, in the mountains and it's real pretty and cool and all that. But the significance of this song in this movie is Django finally has a name. Yeah, you know what I mean. His he, I think he chose his last name to be Freeman. Freeman, yeah, yeah. So that that's his name. Interesting fact about this song, which I didn't know until going into this. Jim Croce died a day before this song was released. What? Yeah. He died in a plane crash. His career was already off the ground. I knew he died in a plane crash, but I, wow, I didn't know that. So he died on September 20th, 19. Oh, what a song to have. 1973. Wow. And the album, I Got a Name, was released uh, December 1st, 1973. Fuck. So another interesting fact about the song, Jim Croce did not write this song. He chose this song because it reminded him of his father because his father always had a dream he wanted to pursue and it reminded him of him and that his father never got to see him successful because his father died before oh my God. seeing him successful. That is a horrible sequence of events. Yeah. But yeah, I thought that was super interesting. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, Jim Croce, he has, he has a decent amount of hits for when oh, he yeah. was alive. Yeah. He has Time in a Bottle, yep. Bad Leroy Brown. Yep, bad, um, bad Leroy Brown. Uh, Don't Mess with Jim. Yep, yep. Oh, my God. he's got. So he had a couple of yeah. hits over the course of the early 70s. And he honestly, if he didn't die, he probably still would have had like a long career. Been working with Tarantino? Maybe. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is the song, I think, when you think of this movie, this is the first song that comes to mind, for sure. Well, it's also Americana, too. Like uh, like the pine trees, line in the road, wind in the road, I got a name. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me think of, of Django, because he finally has his freedom, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, again, I, I think this is a great sequence for the movie. This actually might be, this might be my favorite Tarantino movie, by the way. I think it's probably mine too because it, it like it's the best written, script wise, story wise, the best directed. I would say has the best music picks too. Best music picks because uh, there's some really cool like spaghetti western songs mm -hmm. in it. There's some songs that were written for the movie that were yeah. really good. Yep. <laughs> um, John Legend has a song in it called "Who Did That to You," mm -hmm. and that's a great one. That's a great. I, I don't like John Legend a lot, but that's a great fucking song. Yeah, it's not his typical thing. I no. think he purposely wrote it for. Jango. RZA has a song on there, by the way. We mentioned RZA before. He has a song in this movie. I don't know if it's in the movie. It's on the soundtrack though, and it's called Django. So I don't know if they ended up not using it in the movie. But oh it's no, in. I didn't. Or maybe I... a bit plays in the movie, but when I heard it on the soundtrack, I was like, "Oh shit!" Did he sample the original like Django Western song? No, not for this one. I don't think so. I'd have to re-listen to it. Yeah. 
I haven't listened in a while. But yeah, I, I love this. This is probably my favorite uh, Tarantino movie. So I'll take you back to the beginning then. A little movie called Reservoir Dogs. Yes. I mean, to me, there's only one song to pick from this movie. Stuck in the Middle with You by, uh, what is it? Steeler's Steeler Wheel. Wheel. Steeler's Wheel, yeah. This is, I mean, this is the scene that arguably made everyone go, oh shit, Tarantino. What's, like, what's this kid's name? You know what I mean? Um, cause this came out as his first feature. He wrote and directed it micro budget and the he whole had Harvey Keitel, Harvey Keitel, uh, fucking, uh, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, huge, huge stars. And basically, uh, the movie's very contained. It's a, it's a diamond heist. It goes wrong. And you're at the, the safe house afterwards where they're trying to piece together what happened. You never Which- see the robbery. I didn't notice this until I started rewatching scenes from it. It's in like a coffin storage facility. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's a bunch of coffins everywhere. Damn. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it's a it's a great movie, but one of the best scenes is Mr. Blonde, because they all get color code names. Mr. Blonde played by the great Michael Madsen in his best performance. He's a little crazier than the rest, and when he shows up, he reveals that he kidnapped a cop from the scene. And he brings him inside. They want nothing to do with it. But he's like, I'm going to have a little fun. And so he turns on the radio, searching for something he wants to listen to, finds Stuck in the Middle with You, which is a very, like, uh, upbeat song. Well, we should also say that this movie has, like, a lot of the music is just in the movie in the background because there's the K-Billy super sounds of the 70s -hmm. radio show that's kind of playing. So the beginning of the movie... do you remember the comedian's name who does the voice? It's Stephen Steve, Wright. Stephen Wright. That's it. Yeah. He's fucking hilarious. In the beginning of the movie, the first thing they, they talk about, that's one of the first things they talk about. And you get you can tell, I mean, this is Tarantino's first movie, and the first four minutes or so are just about music. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, because they're talking about uh, Madonna's Like a Virgin. Yep. And Tarantino is saying, because he plays Mr. Brown in the movie, that uh, it's because she finds this dude with a huge dick, and she's never yeah. felt that Pain she since she was down. a virgin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this was, uh, again, it kind of made a statement to everyone like, okay, this guy kind of expresses himself in different ways through music, through extreme violence, which this this scene was a little controversial because it was violent, but, I mean, to explain it, Michael Madsen basically does this little dance. He's got a straight razor. He's having fun, and at one point he cuts part of this guy's ear off. Or he cuts his whole ear off. But when that happens, the camera actually pans up to the corner of the room, and it doesn't show you that. It you just, just pans down. Struggling, yeah, which is honestly more haunting, but also it not as violent as people think. So you just see the aftermath, and then Michael Madsen's holding his ear, and he's like, "Anybody there?" Like he's fucking around with this guy, and just the, I mean, it gets done all the time now where people pick like a song that wouldn't really belong in a scene with like extreme violence. I feel like a lot of that influence comes from Tarantino. Tarantino, 100%. So at this point, like if Reservoir Dogs came out today, this wouldn't be as big of a scene for me. But this was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. And I was like, holy shit. Like people can be listening to just music that like my parents listen to when they cut people's ears off. How fucked up is that? You know, you think you're safe listening to Steeler's Wheel. You ain't safe. The other interesting thing about this scene is through part of it, he walks outside. The music stops. Yep. And you're just seeing Mr. Blonde going into his trunk to get out a can of gasoline. Yeah, because then he wants to burn this guy alive. Yeah, so he goes in there, he douses this guy in gasoline, he pulls the tape off of him, and he tells the kid, or he tells, uh, the cop tells Mr. Blonde, I have a kid. Mm. Which, I guess, he improvised that line. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that Tarantino nice. had in the script, or Tarantino... Gave told him, him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like say this. So it's just kind of interesting too because Tarantino, a lot of his movies, some of them are scored to it, but I think part of the reason that music is so immersive in his films is it's because most of the time it's what the characters are actually listening to. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's why, like, when he picks certain songs, it it, it somehow immerses you in the world more instead of like because some song picks are very on the nose and while I appreciate them and I'm like, oh yeah, this is a cool song to hear. It's just, they're telling you, feel this right now. Yeah. Tarantino's just sort of like, you know, vibe with this vibe with me, you know, he's like, uh, you know, just smoking a joint with a guy and he's just like, all right, just get into it, man. You know? 
So uh, did you pick anything from Reservoir Dogs? I picked the closing credit song on this movie, Coconut the by Harry, yeah, Harry uh, Nilsson. And I chose it because there's basically a Mexican standoff that happens at the end. Yeah. Uh, everybody dies, except maybe Mr. Pink. Do you think Mr. Pink dies in this movie? I, okay, wait, Mr. Pink was Tim Roth, correct? Mr. No, 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 Mr. Pink. Oh, Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Oh, no, Steve Buscemi don't die. No fucking So way. you think he just got caught by the cops? He was the only one yeah, to survive? I think so. As a matter of fact, I even think he may have made it out because he's that wormy. Well, you hear the cops outside take him and they're like struggling and fighting and you hear them screaming at each other. Right. That's what I'm saying, though. Like, even if he got shot, he would get away. Damn. Okay. I love Mr. Pink. I got a lot of faith in Mr. Pink. <laughs> His no he doesn't tip, dude. <laughs> I know. Worst man in the world doesn't tip. Yeah. Um, but I, I love that he leaves it open. You yeah. don't you don't see shit. Like once they're all pointing guns at each other, it's just like, boom. Well, the, gr- the great thing about choosing Coconut for the end of this movie, too, is basically every, you know everybody's about to die at this point. Um, you hear the scuffle outside with the police and uh, Mr. White, who had been, which is played by Harvey Keitel, had been defending Mr. Orange, played by Tim Roth, mm-hmm. this whole movie saying he's a good kid. Right, he's not a cop because people start thinking he's a cop. Yep. He's a rat. That's how they knew about the diamond heist. Yep. And he's the only one to really like defend him because he, he got shot in the stomach and he'd mm-hmm. been dying this whole time and he feels responsible for Mr. Orange because he yeah. thinks he's a, you know, a good kid. Mm. And then he's a good kid. <laughs> he tells him after everybody's pretty much dead and they're the only two alive, but both shot in the gut. Yeah. That uh, he's like, I'm a cop. Oh. And Harvey Keitel loses. It. Yeah. He doesn't know what. To I mean, think. he does the famous uh, gun to the head, gun to the head. His, and you notice when he does that, his hand is on the other side of his face. So this motherfucker's going to blow his head off and blow his hand off at the same time. I never noticed that before. Yeah, I've heard people talk about it. And I'm like, oh, shit, yeah. Um, why did he tell him he was a cop? Why not just keep it to yourself? Or maybe he really thought, like, you know what? I'm dying right now. He might die. I got to tell him the truth. Yeah, I think but that's what it God was. God damn. Yeah. And then cut to black. Yeah, the then you just starts. hear yep. And it's a novelty song. It's yeah. like a novelty song from the 70s. Because you put the lime in the coconut yeah. and drink it both up. Um, so it's not, again, it's not a typical song pick. For It's a juxtaposition to what you just saw. It's completely different. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great song. I mean, the whole soundtrack, Reservoir Dogs, I think was one of the first soundtracks I ever bought. Um, it was great. I listened to it all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so another one of my picks. We'll stay at the beginning. Pulp Fiction. Okay. Flowers on the Wall by, was it the Statler? Statler Brothers? Statler Brothers, yeah. So this plays in uh, Pulp Fiction. My favorite part of Pulp Fiction is the Butch storyline, of course, because it's Bruce Willis. But Bruce Willis is also incredible. This is when he still gave a shit about his performances. He's basically a, a boxer who, a little too old to be successful anymore, he takes a deal from Ving Rhames, Marcellus Wallace, to take a dive. He doesn't take a dive, bets on himself, accidentally kills the other guy in the ring. And then from there, Butch is like on the run. He's trying because Marcellus is coming for him. All these people he wants want, to have him killed. Yeah, wants to have him killed. And so Butch is kind of running around. And you can tell Butch, Bruce Willis, is, he used to be so good at playing these characters where they're as tough as like a Rambo type. But they're just normal dudes thrown in impossible situations. Um, so anyway, at one point, we get explained uh, about a watch. It's very important by the one and only Christopher Walken. A watch he stuck up his ass for years because that watch belonged to Butch's father. And Butch's father, while they were both POWs, he didn't make it. But he would keep the watch up his ass. So when he died, Christopher Walken took it out of his ass, put it in his ass. And he's bringing it to his son. Because it's his birthright. It's his birthright. It came all the way from his uh, great-grandfather who fought in World War One. Mm-hmm. So this watch is very important to him. When he goes uh, to his little uh, motel room with his girlfriend to hide out till they got to get the train the next day, uh, he goes, where's my watch? And he freaks out. He's like, where the fuck 
fuck is my watch? Like you start seeing signs. Maybe this relationship isn't so great. He decides to go back to his apartment to get his watch. John Travolta is there. Gets killed. John Travolta gets killed. John Travolta he was taking gets a killed. shit. Because, yeah, Bruce walks in just at like the best fucking moment. And he's like, holy shit, no one's here. And he starts making some Pop-Tarts. Then he sees the gun. There's a gun on the counter. And then coming out of the bathroom, John Travolta, looking surprised, boom, dies on the shitter. And Butch, after this, he gets in his little shitty car and he's driving off and he's flowers on the wall starts playing. And what I love about it, Bruce Willis plays it so well. Butch gets so into the song. He's like singing along with it. He's like, oh, flowers on the wall. And then he stops at uh, a red light and he just goes, that's how you're going to how you gonna win, win, Butch. They keep underestimating you. And then the second the song goes, it's good to see you. And then all of a sudden, Marcellus Wallace is standing in front of his With coffee car. and donuts, just walking yeah. across the street. And he's like, motherfucker. <laughs> and again, so uh, uh, it turns into extreme violence with a very positive song. But uh, A, I just, I, I love this song. And this song, it was a good pick because it kind of showed you, you know, Bruce was probably more of like a hickish guy growing up. You know, you already he grew kinda, up in Knoxville. Yeah. So you can this kind of gives a glimpse at, you know, who he was as a kid. But also it, the whole song is great because Flowers on the Wall is basically about this guy who's become a shut in and his friends are worried about him. But he's just like, no, I'm, I'm having a good time watching uh, smoking cigarettes, watching Captain Kangaroo is a line from the movie, which, by the way, in uh Die Hard with a Vengeance, Bruce gets asked, where he's playing John McClane, he gets asked, what have you been up to? He's like, you know, smoking cigarettes, watching Captain Kangaroo. So they took it from Pulp Fiction. But yeah, I, I, I love this moment. I think it's like one of the best moments from the Butch storyline. What was your favorite storyline in Pulp? If I had to choose my favorite storyline, it's probably Sam Jackson's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he has like the biggest... Right, he's your hook from the... The yeah. whole way through, yeah. The whole the whole way through, and the other interesting thing, which we'll get we'll get into this more in a second. He might be the only character that escapes this movie with any kind of message once yeah. it was presented to him, because Bruce Willis had to learn, Butch Coolidge had to learn in a hard way what to stand for and what to fight for, right? And he chose himself. Well, wait, Butch, yeah, but remember, Butch had to make another decision too. Whether to go back and save Marcellus Wallace. Well, that's the the next scene that that we're getting into. So my we'll get into the Sam Jackson thing in a second more because I want to talk about that. All right. But uh, so he goes. They get caught. They they go. They get into this brawl after Marcellus the, Wallace and Butch because he runs Marcellus Wallace over. Yeah, and while they're doing this, they're just like wavering all over the street because they're all fucked up from the crash. Just bullets going wildly in every direction. Because he's shooting at Butch as he's running But he down. can't see him because he's just like all fucked up. He's fucked up because he just got hit by a car. He shoots yeah. a lady in the leg. Kathy oh, Griffin's yeah. in this scene. Yep, Kathy Griffin. I think she was dating Tarantino at the time. Oh. <laughs> um, but they I don't want to see those feet. <laughs> in a pawn shop. Yep. And <laughs> yeah. Marcellus Wallace goes in after Butch because he sees that he's in there. Uh -huh. And... Uh, Butch is about to kill him, not execution style. Oh, but, he, but he's like turning his face foot away. Foot to the yeah, neck. He is like. Gun to the head. Yeah. He's about to blow his fucking brains out. Yeah. And then Maynard steps in. <laughs> he fucking knocks Butch out. Yeah. Because he pulls out a shotgun. And he's like, put the gun down. Well, in so many words, he says yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. He knocks, he knocks Butch out. Uh, he calls Zed, who I think is his brother. Um, maybe, but they both wake up down in the basement and they have gags in their gags. mouths. Yeah. Hands tied behind their backs. Yep. And you know, something bad's about to happen, but you don't know what you kind of know, but you're like, no, I, I would never say it out loud. Cause if I say it out loud, it could be real. Then my pick for this scene is the song Comanche by the revels. And is this what plays when all the. The fucking's going so, on. So, yep. So, the uh, the door shuts, and you know what's going on. There's, of course, the famous Gimp. Bring out the Gimp. Get the Gimp. Gimp's uh, sleeping. Wake him up, man. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, Butch gets free. He punches the Gimp in the head, knocks him out. Yeah, the Gimp, we should say, is in, like, an all-leather suit. They keep him in a little case that they lock, and then they... 
what do they keep it in? It's like a cage, yeah. It was terrifying. Yeah, they take him out, but basically he can't speak. He's got a zipper over his mouth. They chain him up outside the room, and the memory does the eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And he picks which one he's going to rape. Yeah. But we already know. Yeah. You get the feeling that it ain't going to be Butch. At least I did. Oh, really? You yeah, because I was wanted... like, this is a racist fucking cop. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because earlier, uh, one of them said the N-word. So, yeah. yeah, they probably were like, we're going to fuck this black guy up. But they didn't say black guy. No. <laughs> no, so basically what happens, they take Marcellus into the room. They pick to rape him first. Butch leaves. This song Comanche is playing in the background. It's a it's a surf rock song. Tarantino has a bunch of surf rock songs in Pulp Fiction. I was gonna say Pulp Fiction, Surf Rock. I mean, perfect marriage right there. Yes, and he chose Surf Rock for this movie because it sounds like rock and roll spaghetti western music. Yeah, wow, that's a good. So yeah. a lot of surf rock and spaghetti western songs they use like reverb, have a lot of the same kind of keys, stuff like that. Um. Originally, though, do you know what song was supposed to be in this scene? No. My Sharona by The Knack. My Sharona. Yeah, that would have been cool, but... Two on the nose. Two on the nose, two overplayed. Even then. Yep. What ended up happening was someone in the band was a born-again Christian, and when they... Oh, shit. They were like, we we don't drive with this. We don't want this to happen. Yeah. But Comanche works a thousand times better because it's just blaring, a blaring saxophone. It's in your face. Yeah, so Butch has to make this decision. He's out. He's leaving. He's getting away. Marcellus Wallace is no longer his problem. Whatever is about to happen to Marcellus, he's about to get fucking killed after he's done being raped. He goes out and he has this moment. He unlocks the door and he looks back and he can hear them downstairs screaming. Uh, uh. You hear the grunting. You hear Marcellus getting raped. He starts going through and choosing different weapons. Because he decides to turn back. He, he can't decides leave. to turn back. Even his own worst, worst enemy. enemy. They, literally. He was, they were trying to kill each other. He was about to blow yeah. his fucking head off. Yeah. Milhouse, what was, Milhouse and I watched this together. That's the biggest lesson of that movie, dude. There are things you, you don't things want you to don't happen, want to even worst, to your worst enemy. Yes. It's a great fucking moment. Yeah. He goes back in. Eventually, he lands on a katana after maybe a chainsaw, maybe a baseball bat. Yeah. But he's like, he sees the katana up there, and it's perfect. The music's going on in the background. da 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 And there's a great scene of him walking down the stairs, and he's got a wild look in his eye, and he's yeah. holding the sword like a samurai. Yeah. And he pushes the door open. And then we see... Marcel... Uh! Marcellus getting uh, raped. Yeah. The uh, uh, Zed raping him. And then the other guy's kind of like... They're jerking off He's watching. like sweating and he's all into it. Yeah. Marcellus it looks up at him. The guy notices and he's like, what the fuck is going on? He turns around. Cuts him in half. Cuts him right across the chest. Then he turns around. He walks a few feet. The guy is shocked. He's stunned. Uh, fucking Zed is stunned. He's like, what the fuck is going on? They, yeah. they never thought in a million years that the outcome yeah. could end up like this. He stabs the dude. The dude falls to the ground. And th- there's a whole the whole little scene that plays out where he has this sword up and he's like, you want that gun, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Zed is about to reach for the gun and Bruce Willis is just like, go ahead. Do it. Yeah, very Clint Eastwood moment. Yeah. And then, yeah, as he's uh, about to kind of kill this guy, you just hear Marcellus Walls step aside. Well, remember his mouth is all fucked up, too, from the ball game. Step aside, butch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's a creepy... It's a song that can be creepy when you want it to be and cool when you want it to be because yeah. we see it do both in this scene. When he's picking out weapons, it's the coolest fucking song ever. Yeah, When you're badass. downstairs, you're like, oh, my God, this is the most frightening fucking it's thing. Horrific. That's why I actually like that he picked this instead of My Sharona. Because if you heard My Sharona, it's like you know that song. You know what I mean? So yeah. you're like, oh, it's creepy. This is and there's playing. already sexual overtones to it. Right. This is an instrumental song. Right. That seemingly has nothing to do with male rape or rape of any sort that we know of. Allegedly. All right. So uh, 
I want to talk a little bit more about Sam Jackson in this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were having a Sam Jackson discussion. Your favorite character. So I think Sam Jackson, the divine intervention happens, you know, where they're about to... They get uh, shot at, but... They get shot at. It appears the bullets went right through them. Yes. And Sam Jackson takes it as a moment, and he's like, I'm going to change my life, basically. Yeah. The reason that I think it was divine intervention, because John Travolta didn't learn his lesson, and he kept going. And he died. He died later oh, that fucking day. So this could have been, okay, going with divine intervention if this was, because as Sam Jackson asks uh, John Travolta, what is a miracle? It's like, you mean like God came down and stopped these bullets? So if this is a miracle from God, yeah, this could have been him And John Travolta them. scoffed at it. Right, because he's warning them, you're both going to die very, very soon. And one of them takes the warning. The other one doesn't. That's an interesting take. The other interesting thing about this, too, is Marcellus Wallace, you see throughout the whole movie until the rape scene, he is seen as this big, intimidating figure. All the stories actually revolve around Marcellus, if you think about it. He's like the the focal point yeah. of the movie. Yeah, because the date with his wife, uh, Butchie owes money, too. And he's doing a job picking up uh, the case. Or they're picking up the case for him. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it's all... It's Marcellus Wallace's world. There could be like theories online that Marcellus Wallace sold his soul to the devil and his soul. That's is what's in, in the case. The I've heard case. That. Yeah. And those guy, those uh, guys that they saw in the apartment where he, where Sam Jackson does the whole Ezekiel speech, those guys were demons, and God was protecting them whenever they got shot at. Wait, so Marcellus sold his soul, but would he have sold it to the devil? I don't know. This is an interesting theory, though. I like it is this. an interesting theory. Because then what if it was like all this div divine shit and it's the Bible verse that saved Sam Jackson where something did come in and go, maybe he's worth saving because he memorized that. Maybe he can actually understand it now. That's that's a fair take, too. I, I love at the end where he's having that conversation with Tim Roth as well. Mm hmm. Because they get into this whole philosophical... He gets into basically a philosophical discussion with himself, and he's trying to help. You, you can see Sam Jackson's such a great actor because you can see his mind working as... He, like, you can tell he's thinking these words before he says them. You know, mm -hmm. you see he's he's making decisions. He's trying to inform this guy, and he, he goes on to say, you know, maybe I'm the... Maybe I'm the shepherd and I'm trying to to get you to God or whatever, but he's like, no, that's not the truth. I'm the tyranny of evil men. Mm -hmm. And you are the sheep, or whatever he says. Yeah, and it's just, uh, it's Tarantino's most philosophical movie, I think, too. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Because there's some kind of message there, and I just think Sam Jackson. I mean, he he might be the best Quentin Tarantino character that there is. I would say second is Django, Jamie Fox. Oh, so you're saying um, from Pulp Fiction that was his best character? Yeah. For oh sure. wow. Interesting. Because he has the most the most growth. He's a the, great character. The yeah. biggest arc. He I does think. have the biggest arc. Yeah. Because Butch has an arc, but it, it's not like he's completely changed after it. He knows something new. Yeah. He's a wiser person. But Sam Jackson actually goes through almost a 180 change. Yes. Basically, I'm going to walk the earth. Yeah. <laughs> Pig's a filthy fucking animal. <laughs> that makes you a bum, Jules. <laughs> <laughs> Without a job, legal tender, or a residence, you are a bum. <laughs> it's a great fucking scene. Um, so yeah, Sam Jackson, he's your favorite from the movie. Yeah. Okay. I can't argue with that. He's a great fucking character. Uh, so I'll go into my next one. I think this might be my last one. Uh, do you have one more? Um, I think so. Here, you This is from, uh, I'm cheating again. This is from True Romance. It's not technically a song they chose it's a piece of film composition and true romance uh quentin tarantino wrote but he did not direct tony scott directed it which him and tony scott had kind of a mentor mentee relationship so uh i'm picking you're so cool by hans zimmer which plays throughout the movie it's a score it, it's a score it's basically the theme of the movie and then it plays at the end it's just a fuck first off little backstory I mean, I love True Romance. It's probably like my favorite Tarantino movie. Even though he didn't direct it, it's like it's still part of that. It has all of his fingerprints on it. Yeah, you can tell like Tony Scott here and there. But I mean, they didn't, from what I heard, they didn't change anything in the script. 
except the ending, which I can talk about that a little later. Um, so basically, I kept hearing this fucking song, bro. For the past few months, I was hearing it on a commercial because I think this uh, this song has been used a lot. I've heard it in other movies and stuff. Really? And I remember you were here and I was like, do you hear this fucking song? What is this song? And it's during a commercial. I kept trying to use my phone. I couldn't find it. And finally, uh, the other day, I was like, oh, you know what I want to rewatch? I want to rewatch True Romance. And I heard the fucking song. And it turns out it's You're So Cool by Hans Zimmer. So it's great. It's, it's basically, it sounds like all wood instruments. It's very, um, I don't know. It's like not tribal in a scary way, but in like, uh, in like, uh, what Melhouse? Oh, I was just gonna say Hans Zimmer is extremely famous in like audio. Oh yeah, yeah, he's he huge. did the Batman yeah, movies. Yeah. He's done famous. a bunch of different stuff. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I love this 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 piece of music he does. It's it's fucking amazing. Again, it's sort of just it, it puts you in a good mood. Like you're just excited about something. You're excited about the day. It's very nineties. Very nineties. Yep. Um, and the the thing I like about so the the line you're so cool. True Romance, again, I saw when I was way too fucking young. And True Romance, we have to remember, was written by a very young Tarantino. It was written by a Tarantino who was in his mid-20s, working in a goddamn video rental store, probably not getting laid. And he wrote basically his ultimate fantasy because Christian Slater in the movie plays a guy who works at a comic shop. He loves movies, goes to the movies all the time, isn't the best with women. And then he meets this woman who's... Patricia Arquette, so she's gorgeous. Bama. And Alabama. Alabama. They have a great night. She ends up admitting to him that she's a prostitute who was hired by uh, his boss to hang out with him that night because his boss felt bad for him. He says, fuck that. You're not a prostitute anymore. They fall in love. What's that? <laughs> what is it, Millhouse? Taylor. Uh, so they, they fall in love. He goes, it, it turns into a whole thing because he goes to kill her pimp, basically, even though he doesn't say that's what he's going to do. Gary Played. Oldman playing a white man who thinks he's black, something you could never, ever get away with today. Yep. And one of his henchmen, right, was uh, Tony Soprano. Uh, yeah. James not, Gandolfini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not for him, but for uh, Christopher Walken, one of his oh, guys. Oh, okay. Yeah. James Gandolfini. Yeah. All right. This, this is a, keep going on what you were saying. Uh, Go ahead, yeah. I'll well, say, you I'll mentioned Gary Oldman, I was going to say, because I just watched this. It's fresh in my head. His performance, okay, could not exist today. It is way too on PC. Because when I say he plays it like a white dude who thinks he's black, there's no gray area. I he, forgot Gary Oldman was in this movie. Yeah, he talks like this, man, like he's from Jamaica. Yeah. And he's all like, like I remember Christian Slater comes to see him, and he's just standing there all nervous. And he's like, see, a bad motherfucker would have just sat down, said nothing. That's how I know you scared, boy. And he just like throws this fucking light at him. He's just dangling back and forth. But anyway, uh, Gary Oldman distracted me. Anyway, so these two fall in love. And the movie is, I mean, if you take a young artist, a young dreamer who things aren't going their way, Alabama is the invention you would create in your head. Because not only is she gorgeous, she thinks everything you think is cool is cool. But more importantly, she thinks he's cool. Because that's what matters at the end of the day. There's a scene where they're right before this big gunfight. Millhouse, I'll get to you in a second. Don't worry, sweetie. Uh, I hear him uh, making, I know. making Millhouse noises. <laughs> I wonder if they heard that. Yeah, I hear you, Millhouse. I got you. So she writes him a note that just says, you're so cool when they're making this drug deal. Because after he kills Gary Oldman, he takes what he thinks is her stuff, but it's actually a bunch of drugs. And they go to L.A. to sell them. She writes this note, you're so cool, gives him like a little bit of confidence. And the last lines of the fucking movie, after Christian Slater's been shot in the head, fucking he lives, they have a kid, they're on a beach in probably Mexico, and she's just like, you're so cool, you're so cool. Movie ends, boom, cut to black, you're so cool plays. This movie has no doubt ruined many a young man, myself included. Because Tarantino took what was a fantasy and made it a reality. You know what I mean? He showed like, what if there is some hot chick who just thinks you're fucking cool? Anyone who's been in a long-term relationship, even with a hot chick, they don't always think you're cool. It's impossible. But I'll keep striving for it. Another young actor that was in this movie. Lots of them. First roles. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. Which brings me to our final song. Oh, wait, did Milhouse have something he wanted to say first? Oh, I was going to say, I, I think I've seen this movie. Like I, you guys started describing it, I'm pretty sure. Oh, True Romance? Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. 
Good. <laughs> I really thought. I, I'm sorry. I thought. No. I, I really thought he had. Good like on, a, I thought he had a gold nugget. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Okay, back to what I was talking about. Yeah, Brad Pitt. Uh, you keep me hanging on. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Ooh, went for once upon a time in Hollywood. So I chose this song for a couple of different reasons. It's significant to the film and significant to the time period for two reasons. Number one, the song lyrically. It's, it's all about basically the changing of tides and the ending of a relationship, which is the situation between Brad Pitt, who's played by Cliff Booth, and Leo. You mean Cliff Booth, who's played by Brad Pitt. Yeah, whatever. Uh, and Leo DiCaprio, who plays Rick Dalton. They just get back because the whole movie is pretty much like a, a hangout movie, except for one other scene that's kind of like graphic is when they're at Spawn Ranch because it's about the Manson yeah, family. Yeah, it's like and all a little short horror movie in the middle of everything. I think this one scene represents a the the not the ending of their friendship, but the changing of it, and b they used a cover of a song that was originally by the Supremes. So it's the changing of the guard from the 60s to the 70s. Oh, that's a deep cut. I like that. Because the song's very drenched in acid. It's done by Vanilla Fudge. Different style than the original because it's originally a Motown song. So it's like a pop song from from the mid-60s. And the whole time while this song is playing, Cliff is tripping on acid. An acid cigarette that he got from one of the Manson family girls, actually. He bought it uh, off of her. Yeah, Cliff got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now he's tripping balls. This is their really their last night of hanging out. They just got back to town. They're having one big blowout and kind of going their separate ways. Yeah, because Rick has to basically let uh, Cliff go because business is kind of slowing down. His career slowing down. Mm-hmm. And he just got married. And he just got married, yeah. So they were having one final night. The Manson family comes to their house because Rick has a confrontation with them out in the driveway before all of this goes Fucking down. Fucking hippies. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the one thing I love about this movie is the d- disdain for hippies. Oh, yeah. They are seen as second-class citizens. They yeah. are hated. Um, Make America great again. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> but th- this song is playing. He's playing it from like a jukebox in the house or a stereo in the house, <clears throat> and he's flying hard on acid. You can tell he's tripping. And the Manson family burst in, Mm -hmm. and they start threatening him. And at one point, Cliff asks, are you real? And my favorite line of the movie is, I'm as real as a donut, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) So they get into a whole big thing, a whole big fight. Cliff is, is this whole time, he's out in space, and he's fighting these fucks. His dog is there. He gets his dog to bite Tex Ritter, in the, or not Tex Ritter, Tex uh, Watson, I think that's his name. I think so, yeah. In the dick. Um, shit goes awry for the Manson family. So he rewrote history with this movie, Which he's too. done multiple times. He's done multiple times. I think the significance of the cover, too, is that it's an alternate to the original that everybody knows, which is what this story is and how mm-hmm. it ends. Because the Manson family are seen... In this movie, the way Tarantino portrays them as bumbling idiots. Because Rick lives right next door to... Uh, Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, who was murdered. Sharon Tate, yeah. In real life, she was actually murdered by the Manson family. Which a, a lot of people mark her death as like the death of the 60s. And the changing... In Hollywood, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that that's why I love it. I mean, it, it's a whole great scene. I... Brad Pitt beats the shit out of all three of these people. Even high on acid. Even high on acid, even though they're women, which are like the unbreakable rules in Hollywood today. They're hippies. And they're seen as violent lunatics, too. Yeah, hippies. Hippies. Never trust the hippies. Hippies got no genitalia. I don't give a fuck. Nobody better than nobody. But yeah, I just thought it was interesting that he chose a cover of this song because there was some significance to that. For me. Yeah, no, that's a cool detail. I like that because it plays into... It plays into very much what that movie was about. We should say, too, Rick gets to burn one of uh, the hippies alive. Yes. And he's... I think he's just drunk. I think he's just a drinker. Yeah, he's just just drunk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a great... great, Where do you rank Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as far as Tarantino movies? I'll have to choose my first favorite is Django. Um, 
My second f- favorite is probably Reservoir Dogs, and I would rank Once Upon a Time in Hollywood three. Three? That's pretty high. It would probably be up there for me, too. Um, <laughs> it's different than a lot of his movies. When I originally saw this in the theater, I was like, this is a Tarantino movie, but it's oh, not. Once, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because a little more mature, I yeah, guess, in some ways. Because really, it just follows the story of Rick and Cliff this whole time and their friendship and kind of the... It, it just follows that. And you see Rick, he's a, like a failing uh, actor. He's trying to make it in movies. He can. He was a big TV star. Because back in the day, if you were a TV star. Yeah, you didn't transition as yeah, easily. Yeah, you were just a TV star. You weren't also a movie star. Well, I think that's why this movie, it, it may not be Tarantino's best, but it's the most Tarantino Tarantino movie that's been made. because It's a love letter. Yeah, it's a love letter to basically everything we've been talking about. It's a love letter to the music he loves, to the eras he loves, to the artists he loves. Like, this is his mind sort of just spilled out, you know, with no filter. And that's why I think it is the most Tarantino Tarantino movie. But as you said, like, it feels different because he's almost messaging you more directly with this shit. Mm -hmm. With uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The thing that's interesting movie... Uh, interesting about this movie too is the tone it do, it has the same tone the whole way through until it hits that scene where Brad Pitt goes to Spawn Ranch to go check on his yep. old friend because he's starting to realize something weird is going on here yeah with all these kids living at this old movie set ranch yeah and that's where the Manson family stayed because the, t- the tone of that scene is really like a horror movie it's straight horror it's the one because the movie I, I think the whole time is juggling different tones, but that's the one section of film where it's like, no, this is the tone and everything else disappears. And all of a sudden it's like cliff is your only real connection to the rest of the movie. And you feel like he's walked on to another movie. So you're like, Oh shit. Rules are kind of off here. It's a great sequence. One of his best. That I think done. that might be the only other one that I would compare it to. I put that in my top three Tarantino scenes when he beats up that hippie. Cause it's awesome. Um, I would put it up there with when Django goes, uh, well, when fucking Dr. Schultz refuses to shake Leo oh, DiCaprio's yeah. hand great and the giant gunfight breaks out, which is my all time favorite gunfight in any movie. It's a, it's a great gunfight. Did you notice, uh, neither of us picked from the same movie? I, I think there's only one movie Tarantino did. We didn't talk about kill bill. Kill Bill, yeah. We, we picked from everything except uh, the two Kill Bills. Um, and Hateful Eight. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I almost picked a Hateful yeah. Eight song, so I will and say. And Inglorious Bastards. And Inglor- oh, yeah, so there's a few we didn't talk about. I mainly just wanted to shit on Kill Bill. <laughs> yeah, no. It's my least favorite. I, I like Bang Bang at the beginning of that movie. I like a lot of shit in and it. And there, there's good. a lot of great soundtrack moments in it, but I don't know what it is about Kill Bill. I've never been able to get into it the way other people have. Like, some Dude, people, that's their favorite Tarantino obsessed. movie. Yeah, I, which I get it. The first part's really cool. second part, to me, is just kind of nonsense. But, yeah, we didn't pick from Kill Bill. Tarantino has a book coming out. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well, he has that, but he, he's been writing... Yeah, he's got two. Novels, yeah. Yeah, he's been writing novels, and he says he's also writing um, uh, books about basically like the era of filmmaking that he loves. I think one he said was a book about Don Siegel, who's an old late director, directed uh, Dirty Harry, a bunch of other 70s crime stuff. And I think he was writing another one on a couple movies or something. But the one that's coming out first is this year, and it'll be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the novel. And I think he has a nonfiction book after that because he signed a two-book deal. But yeah, he says after 10 movies, he's just going to... So he has nine movies now. Which, if you could have him do any 10th movie, what would it be? Because he's mentioned a lot of possible stuff. I don't see him doing any of it. He'll probably do something unexpected. He'll do something unexpected. The thing that'll be interesting to see if it's going to be another period piece. Because all of his movies have been period pieces since Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. So, Inglorious Bastards, then The Hateful Eight. Or, no, Inglorious Bastards, then Django, then The Hateful Eight, and then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Do you think, though, that Tarantino really. Because from what I hear about him, he's so rich, he basically cuts himself off from social media, television, all of it. He has the luxury, too. He has the luxury, too. That's why I'm saying, like, is it worth having Tarantino make a movie set in the modern day? I don't know if he'd have anything to say. I don't know if you really would either. I, I mean, I'd be. It, it sounds interesting, 
I just can tell like that's one of the reasons I think he's stayed relevant is because you see a lot of people and this is in every art field. I mean, Howard Stern, you know what I mean? You can go with anyone. A lot of these people, they start out and they're like their appeal is that they're speaking to the everyman and they have the everyman story. And they're against the grain at the same time. They're against the grain. But over time, you can't always be that guy. But I feel like Tarantino's found a way to keep doing it because he started focusing on period pieces. So all of a sudden, the controversy around his other movies, if you bring it up with these movies, he's just like, it was the times. Because you can bring up the N-word in Pulp Fiction, but you bring it up in Django, he's like, fuck you, slavery. Yeah. What I'd like to see him do, I think it would be cool if he did a sci-fi horror movie. Like an alien-type movie? Yeah. That would be cool. That would be really cool. A space movie would be cool. Like a contained... It would be cool to go out on a contained movie... Because Reservoir Dogs was real contained, but uh, Hateful Eight was too, so that was kind of him circling back. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like he's talked about a few things, Star Trek. Uh, yeah. I don't see him doing that. I don't think he will either. It sounds like he's not. It sounds like they might use a story, but uh, way back in the day, he can't make this now. But I would have loved to see the uh, film about Michael Madsen and John Travolta. Double V Vega. Vega, the Vega. It brothers. would have been a prequel story because it turns out they're related. We yeah, should have mentioned this, that earlier. In this Tarantino universe, they are related. That would have been awesome to see. Obviously, way too late for that. The the original story was supposed to be that uh, the the that they were in Amsterdam. Yeah, because John Travolta at the beginning of Pulp Fiction, he's the famous scene of them talking about Royale with cheese, all that shit, mm-hmm. would be about him running a club in Amsterdam for. Marcellus Wallace, which I guess for a time as well, Tarantino also lived in Amsterdam for a few months. Oh, shit. Okay, I didn't know that. That would be in a dream world where he could make anything I'd like him to make that, but even with today's technology, you just you just can't. John yeah. Travolta and Michael Madsen, they're 60, 70 years old. Yeah. But if I could go back in time and have him make one movie, that would have been the movie I would have wanted to see him make. But yeah, a space horror movie, that would be cool. I'd say another Western because I love him doing Westerns, but it's like if he's only making 10 movies, uh, he can't waste another yeah. one. But yeah, man, I, I love, uh, I still love Tarantino, you know, maybe I'm not as like personally invested in him as I was when I was younger, but he was one of the first filmmakers I really, once I watched one movie, I had to watch all his other movies back to back. He's the king of cool and the master of soundtracks. The master of soundtracks, the king of cool. I like that. I like that. This podcast is produced to you by Taylor Miller.